With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome into a mid-August edition of the show before the show, the official podcast of minor league baseball from MILB.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hi, Tyler. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. You? I'm good. I'm good. All things good. considered. Which Good. Yeah. We always have to throw in at the ever, end right. of every sentence right now. Yep. Uh, yeah, certainly is uh, is the case for the foreseeable future for all of us, it feels like. Um, you, there, tuned in. Let us know how you're doing. Get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. Your questions, your thoughts, your comments, your concerns, all of it. Uh, we will... Uh, give you the access that you so ardently desire to this minor league baseball podcast uh, through that email address. Um, and we welcome you to this week's episode of the show. Got a lot coming up for you today. Uh, we now have official baseball games in a minor league baseball stadium, as crazy as that is. And we will talk about that coming up here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but a big thanks to uh, you all for tuning into the show, wherever you found us at MILB.com slash podcast or wherever you download your finest podcasts. Uh, like we said, you can get in touch with the show. You can also give us a rating and a review and a subscription. And uh, these days we've kind of gone back and forth, plug this at times and uh, other times I've forgotten to, but we really are in such a weird and transitional period in terms of uh, the way we see all sports right now. But I think it's a, a good time for all of us to have conversations in sports about the things that maybe we just haven't really delved into that much uh, in sports. So if you have questions, if you ever thought to yourself about a minor league roster, okay, well, what does this mean? Or how does this transaction go down? Or what is a, you know, a player to be named later? How does a trade like that get executed? Uh, get in touch, podcast at MILB.com. Sam is the one with all the answers. And I will <laughs> awkwardly lead into all of them with questions. That I was going to say, you just volunteered me for like yeah. opening up a baseball. Sam will roster. do all of the work, yeah. but you can email us. <laughs> and you I can will email send us. Email. <laughs> at this address and then Sam no I like Tyler has a lot of answers and I would love to do a mailbag episode of this show yeah I think it'd be fun I think it'd be um, a lot of fun yeah I know a lot of other podcasts do that and it it's nothing that we've ever really needed to dive into too much just because minor league baseball even this summer it felt like you know there was always something happening every week and yeah there was always something to talk about and uh that's still been the that's still the case and who knows what will happen in the next week to to bring up, you know, as a, as a topic for next week. But uh, if you just have like a generic question or a general question, you've always wanted the answer to like how much money is actually thrown into a trade when it's cash considerations, um, stuff like that, ask us. And, and um, if it's general enough and, and evergreen enough, maybe at the beginning of September or something like that, or at the end of the major league season, uh, we can get to all those. Or if we get on enough of them for next week, maybe we'll do it next week. Uh, we'll see where, where the, the news takes us, as it were. But, um, yeah, so much going on in, in baseball right now. And, obviously, even without a minor league season, there's still a lot of talk about with rookies and uh, what's happening in minor league parks, which we'll do a ton of today. 
uh, which I'm really excited about. So yeah, shoot any and all questions you have over to us on Twitter, over the email address. I don't know, shout it out the window. Maybe the wind will carry it to us, uh, get it to us somehow. Do it and we'll have some fun with it. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into this week's episode of the show before the show. Last night, we saw baseball being played televised nationally, internationally, really, uh, on the field at a minor league ballpark in 2020. And the Toronto Blue Jays, who are calling Buffalo home for the 2020 season, walked off with a victory over the Miami Marlins in 10 innings. Uh, I turned that game on just in time to, uh, to see Bo Bichette go off with a, a home run and a ridiculous defensive play. Like the next half inning, his homer was a three-run shot uh, that came in the sixth. But the Blue Jays walk off over the Marlins 5-4. to four. That game held at Salem Field in Buffalo. And uh, we, of course, had a, a lengthy conversation uh, about the – not the, the challenges necessarily, but really more the opportunity – of being able to convert the uh, the AAA home of the Buffalo Bisons uh, into a major league facility uh, just not even two weeks ago now. Was it two weeks ago? I guess in total two weeks ago. Uh, but Mike Buchkowski, who is the uh, the president of Rich Baseball Operations and uh, the, the head of the show in Buffalo, uh, Mike joined us to talk about that whole process. All of that came down to last night and getting that operation uh, off the ground successfully with major league caliber lighting and a new infield that was put in and advertising and all that type of stuff stuff. Uh, giant Black Lives Matter billboard on the outfield wall, which I thought was fantastic. The Blue Jays, uh, the the liner on, on top of the dugout and in the dugout, the uh, there's an actual term for those, and now I can't remember what it is, but m- making it look as though, oh, that's the Rogers Center looking dugout. Um, it all last night came together, and uh, the Jays played at Salem Field and, and took home that victory. Toolshed, a couple of weeks ago, Sam's fantastic column, dived into what Salem Field could mean in terms of its park effects, how it plays, uh, and how that would translate to a major league level of play. Tell us a little bit about that column and what, especially for Jays fans who are going to be watching a lot of games from Buffalo, what this ballpark could look like for their team this season. Yeah, so as Tyler touched on right there, there were a lot of renovations that went on, as you guys heard on the show a couple weeks back. Big ones were the lights. Uh, if you watch that game, they actually brought in um, some equipment. They, they changed all the light bulbs uh, in the park entirely, mostly for the broadcast, I think, but they also saved for player safety. They played minor league baseball games there. I don't know how much of it was player safety, but it looks better on the broadcast. But they brought in like other stanchions, which were apparently supposed to be used at the canceled Field of, game, Field of Dreams game this year in Iowa. They just like shipped those to Buffalo. Uh, so there are a lot of changes in that way, but it's still a ballpark. It's still in the same spot. It's still got the same dimensions. Um, so how does that play as a stadium? Is it a pitcher's park? Is it a hitter's park? So I, I dove into the park factors. I've done this pretty much every offseason for a while now, or I updated every few offseasons uh, for the AAA leagues, AA, Class A advance, and Class A. Uh, so this was just taking that data and then plugging it in to, uh, you know, how does it compare to other major league parks? Um, so Buffalo, by international league standards, is maybe a hair on the pitcher-friendly side. Uh, if we look at what the run factor is, 100 being average. Uh, Buffalo is 96 on the run factor. So it's just a hair below there, not too wildly. So it's not like Norfolk, which was 85, or Indianapolis, which was 86, or going the other way, Charlotte was 123, which checks out if you've ever watched a game at Charlotte and seen the ball fly out of that stadium. Buffalo is pretty fair. It's it's a hair on the pitcher's side, but even the home run factor isn't 
a hair below that at 94. Um, so I reached out to Buffalo hitting coach Corey Hart, uh, who's been with the club for a couple of years now. He, when I talked to him, he was actually traveling with the Blue Jays. So he's up with the big league club right now. And I was trying to figure out why is that? What is it about Buffalo that plays just under average? Uh, and one of the things he pointed out was it's really difficult to go deep to right field in that park. Uh, the wind is coming off Lake Erie. If you go to Google Maps right now, type in Salem Field, Buffalo. It, you will see, you know, the outline of the stadium. And right there in right field is Lake Erie. The wind is coming off that. You even saw that a little bit last night uh, in Buffalo, if you were watching that game. I think Teoscar Hernandez, like, tripped over the bullpen, which is in foul play uh, because he lost it a little bit in the wind. Uh, the wind is going to play, and it's usually coming right to – essentially right to left or in from right field. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit more difficult for left-handed hitters to drive the ball out there. I think even Kevin Biggio said that. Uh, it's going to be really difficult to do that. So you, you'll see more guys with right-handed power, like Bo Bichette last night, uh, or Brian Anderson, who hit the first home run in Salem Field uh, in over a century. Uh, or oh, first home run in Buffalo, I should say. Salem Field is not a century old. But their first home run in Buffalo as a major leaguer in a, in a century. Um, it's going to be a lot more favorable to right-handed hitters than it is left-handed hitters. Uh, compared to some of the other places that Blue Jays, the Blue Jays will play in this year, um, you know, Washington is probably the most hitter-friendly. Miami is the most pitcher-friendly. Buffalo is like right in that mix. It's about, if I was going to use a comp, I would say maybe the trop, but it's outdoors. Uh, the Trop is a little bit more pitcher friendly than certainly Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park or uh, Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. So it's going to be one of the more pitcher friendly places the Blue Jays played this year. When we're looking at how that lineup works, obviously a lot of players for the Blue Jays have played in Buffalo before. Um, but there's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. If he can learn to lift the ball this year, but part of it. His major problem is that he's hitting the ball on the ground a lot. If he can lift it, he shouldn't have that big of a problem hitting the ball out to left. Bobby Shett shouldn't have that problem. Let's see what happens with somebody like Travis Shaw, who walked off last night uh, for the Blue Jays. But he'll be having a little bit more difficulty. Maybe Kevin Biggio would uh, as compared to Toronto, which is definitely more home run friendly uh, and a little bit more hitter friendly overall. Uh, part of that being the roof is closed. Balls are going to sail a little bit more. There's no wind involved on days uh, the roof is closed. Um, so we could see a slight uh, depression of offense in this Jays uh, season overall. But when we're talking about basically two dozen games, uh, anything is possible. So for all we know, we in a sample that small, we could see more offense in Buffalo. But given the way the park factors have played in previous years, at least according to the International League, we should expect it to be a little bit more of a pitcher's park than we would have had, had uh, the Jays been able to play in Toronto all season long. So enjoy the, uh, the vantage point from a much different center field cam and all those types of things that come along with playing in a triple A ballpark Jays fans. I also, uh, last night, I would have been very interested to know the reaction. Uh, Hunjin Ryu started that game last night. So there were probably a lot of people tuning in in Korea. I believe every one of his starts gets national televised play uh, in South Korea. It'd be kind of cool to, to see what the reaction was from a, a fan base in a different part of the planet that probably hasn't watched a whole ton of games in Buffalo. Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting things about that park is that they did such a good job of it. 
that you probably couldn't tell. You know, if you were, yeah. in, I'm sure there are Korean fans who are big, you know, Major League Baseball fans. They know, hey, Toronto plays indoors. This is not indoors. Right. Uh, but if you were just to show that park and say, yeah, this is where Toronto's playing this year, you'd be like, okay, this looks good to go. That looks ready. Um, so they, they did a really good job at turning that place over, making it look big. Uh, as we know, as we talked on the podcast two weeks ago, that place was originally designed with the hopes that it could someday become a major league stadium. It didn't work out in either of the expansions to come uh, after it opened in the late eighties, but uh, it put on a good show in night one. And and I'm sure that'll continue as the Jays continue to make it home. Very cool stuff. Uh, At least getting a little bit of minor league baseball incorporated in this weird 2020 (laughs) campaign. Um, And uh, we, we continue along in our opening segment this week. We've been doing these stories uh, for the last couple of weeks now, and that will continue throughout the month of August uh, in an attempt to highlight some of our best fans uh, across the minor league baseball landscape. And if you believe that you can claim to be MILB's biggest fan, you can tell us why at the MILB Fan Lounge, created in conjunction with MILB partner Brand Activation Maximizer for a chance to be a special guest and share your story on this very podcast with me and Sam. Uh, we've had some fun with these so far. We, of course, had Josh on last week to talk about ice cream helmets, and I got to write a thing about hats. No surprise. Yeah, no surprise at all. And you would the what started this whole thing, which like you got to sign the story. Let's not say like you just threw it out there and it turned into a story. This was a story that was going to happen. But you threw out a tweet saying, hey, hat Twitter, if there is a hat Twitter, looking for nerds like me with Milb hat collections. Give me a reply or tag somebody, you know, with one. And you got ratioed in the I best did. way possible. In a very good way. And I knew... I knew there was a hat Twitter. And if I said, Hey, is there a hat Twitter? I knew that all blow up. I know. I know. I know the people I'm dealing with. That's just a um, lesson of uh, social being media a hat engagement. person myself. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, no, the ratio was fantastic. I got, I mean, I don't even know what that tweet ended up with, but it was upwards of 250 replies or something like that. And it was cool because the, the thing that came out of it was a very wide spectrum of people who collect hats or like hats uh, or are, you know, the, the difference between collectors and hoarders, I think sometimes can be, uh, and I know that was a quote that uh, Paul Caputo gave to Josh Jackson talking about his, uh, his ice cream helmet collection. Um, there were definitely a lot of people that, uh, that replied that even I, a man who owns north of 125 fitted caps, even I looked at and thought, maybe you should get a handle on that. That seems excessive. Um, but there were also a lot of people who replied who were just kind of getting into this. And, uh, and it was really cool getting a chance to talk to a lot of them. So I told four different stories in this piece, talked to five different people uh, for the stories. Um, two guys who I started the story with, uh, Brendan Panikar and Stephen Postma, who are both Canadians who went to, to university together, as they would say, we would say college, uh, just translating the, the cross-border American-Canadian English. Um, they attended school together, uh, and in the early 2010s, they came up with this idea, you know what we should do every year? We should do a, a hat trade. Uh, they used to go across the border to, oddly enough, Buffalo Bisons games. And that's where they kind of started getting into minor league baseball. And as they told the story back in uh, 2012, 2013, somewhere around then, they one day between classes just got stuck looking at minor league hats and logos and team names and all that stuff online and decided they were going to set up this annual hat exchange. So that's a thing that they do nowadays uh, every holiday season, which is super cool. Uh, one go- guy who I absolutely love talking to is D Rice, who is uh, in now Northern California, just moved there 
this spring from Las Vegas where he had lived for 10 years. Uh, and Dee is actually from Dayton originally. And if you know anything about uh, the minor leagues, the Dayton Dragons are maybe the most successful franchise in recent minor league baseball history. They've sold out every game since their inception in the year 2000. Um, Dee had actually moved away from Dayton before the Dragons arrived. Uh, left, moved to Atlanta, where he spent a lot of his, his formative years. Then he was on to Vegas. Uh, and it really wasn't until he started kind of researching. He's a Cincinnati Reds fan. Uh, started researching, you know, prospects and learning about guys who were coming up and all that, uh, that he started following teams and realized, hey, we've got a, a team in Louisville and we got a team in Chattanooga or wherever it was at the time. Uh, and, of course, a team in his hometown of Dayton. So got into following Reds affiliates. Then living in Las Vegas, he said he used to go down to Cashman Field, go to games when the then Las Vegas 51s were playing in downtown Vegas. Last year, he actually got season tickets at Las Vegas Ballpark for the Aviators' first season. Uh, so D and uh, his girlfriend, Michelle, would go to games there. Um, and then this year, strangely, got to see a game in a minor league ballpark before the pandemic hit. The Cincinnati Reds played the Chicago Cubs uh, in a, a series, a brief two-game spring training series the week before everything shut down for the pandemic. Uh, but it was really cool because now he's living in Northern California. Said he's already checked out, you know, hopefully at some point being able to go to San Jose Giants games and check out some of the other teams that are around where he lives now. Uh, but there are just some really fun stories. Anna Lindahl, who is a, a Tacoma Rainiers fan and a, a Seattle Mariners fan, her collection is almost entirely Rainiers hats. She's got 36 different Rainiers hats. Uh, th it was just such a great uh, smattering of – the different types of collections, the different things that people look for. Kevin Clone's a guy who uh, travels around the country for work and basically on a weekly basis throughout a normal minor league season, he can go to games in any corner of the country because of where his work takes him. Uh, so he's got dozens of hats and jerseys and autographed baseballs and uh, all kinds of memorabilia. And it just shows the, the range of minor league fans. And those were four stories that I got to tell. There were hundreds of people who got in touch which is really cool. I know even, you know, I messaged some people on Twitter and said, hey, I'd really love to be able to, to talk to you for this story. Let me kind of get everything together and, uh, and we'll figure out hopefully a time for an interview and then didn't get a chance to interview him because there was so much to cover. And, uh, but it was a, a fun one. This is a really good one to put together. Yeah, and, and that D. Rice story that you mentioned in there, I think might've been my favorite too, just because it, it speaks to somebody who has moved around the country and touched, you know, uh, you you have his story about how he found minor league baseball. And it's just like, Oh wait, the reds have other affiliates and they're in all these other places. Well, right. I should start following them. And Oh wait, I moved to Vegas and, and they're an A's affiliate now. So I'm going to start following the A's a little bit more. And now he's moving to NorCal and he's going to be close to San Jose and he's probably going to follow giants. Like it's just spreading the gospel and seeing how that goes around. I mean, you go on MILB.com right now and you see a map and you can see how widespread minor league baseball is it is really difficult to go to certain corners of this country and not be close to a team and just become a fan of that team, whether you're a fan of the major league affiliate or not. Um, and there's the great story you have in here about D turning to his girlfriend and just being like, Oh, that's Gavin Lux. We saw him come through here. Like it, right at its most simplistic form. That is what makes minor league baseball. Great is being to say, being able to say, I knew him when, um, it's one of the great things about this podcast and having certain guys on and yeah, and they make their major league debut and we're like, we had him years ago. We knew him before you did. Yeah. Right. We're just the uh, annoying hipsters who saw a band five years before their first big song. That's us. Uh, but we get to do it professionally. We get to be professional hipsters, which as somebody who lives in Brooklyn, this is the, uh, 
this True. is the dream. It's the dream uh, for you. It's the, yeah, clearly, uh, being a <laughs> professional hipster, but, um, but no, that just having that, it, it diluted to that simplicity yeah. and just it, hats have being the medium to tell that story and having these collections grow and grow. And the stories you chose here are great too, because there's such different stories of people traveling all around the country, or like you mentioned, uh, with Anna and her Tacoma collection. Yeah. Like, I, I know the Rainiers have a bunch of different hats and they're pretty good at that, but they, they usually have such a down the middle, uh, identity. Like, yeah. you know, it's going to be that Rainier's logo, which you can see on beer cans as well. And it's pretty identifiable, but to see this many different hats is insane to me. Yeah. Her collection, just from the picture she sent me, you can see uh, a Tacoma Cubs hat, a Tacoma Yankees hat, a Tacoma Tugs hat, which is maybe the cutest logo in the history of minor league baseball. If you go onto the, the Rainier's team store, they have the, the, the Tugs hat and it's a, a little smiling anthropomorphic tugboat. It's the cutest. Um, yeah. And those are all just Rainier's hats. It's amazing. Yeah. And it makes me think Tyler, cause I know you have certain minor league teams where you have almost every, probably Myrtle beach is yeah, up there. I'm sure. A bunch of those, but uh, for a, a team that you don't have in your collection and you can have upwards of a dozen hats, like what team would you choose? If I said your next 12 hat purchases all have to be from one minor league team. Tacoma. Well, although you, I have to have it not in my collection. I do have a couple yes. of Tacoma hats already. Um, man, that is a very good question. Uh, I don't have, you know, D rice, uh, has a, a couple of Vegas hats. He said he wasn't real big on the, the aviators, the main logo, the aviator head logo, but he loves that LV logo, which I am very much uh, on board with him on in that account. Uh, and also the, uh, the Reyes de Plata, the Copa logo for Vegas, Vegas has some really good ones. Uh, see, it's a, it's difficult because the teams that I love that have a bunch of different hats, I probably already have one of theirs. Like Hartford is a no brainer, but I have like four yard goats hats already. Um, I don't know. I gotta, I gotta think about this. now. I mean, that's fair. I, I did throw in the wrinkle of like, you can't have their hat. Right. Already, which right. for you takes a lot of teams out of that. That's true. A lot of teams are out of the equation. The thing that I think I loved most about getting a chance to talk to all these people for this story and D brought it up in, I think it was Steven, uh, one of the Canadian guys who I talked to who brought it up. The amount of times it was Steven, cause I'm actually looking at the quote right now. The amount of times that, uh, that these fans talked about, loving the way minor league hats start conversations that is the thing that i love maybe most about minor league hats because i share that uh that same experience where you know you're in a grocery store you're walking through a terminal in an airport or you're at a coffee shop or whatever and somebody sees your hat and says oh hey is that a blank hat whatever the the team is either they're from that place or they knew somebody who went to a game there once or they had a friend who played there something like that like it it really does have a way of sparking conversation in a way that a major league hat and not just major league baseball a hat from a team in one of the the four major sports leagues would not spark a conversation. That's what's so cool about minor league baseball is it still localizes things in a way that no other sport does. And I love that virtually everybody that I talked to for this story said some version of that. Yeah. And uh, we, we can't say this enough. I, I know Ben has been very big about this on Twitter, but like there's no greater way to support your local minor league baseball yeah. team right now than to get a hat. I mean, I, 
I had a great mail uh, day over the weekend. I got a new Missoula Paddleheads hat. Fantastic. I was very excited to show Tyler on Monday when he first signed on. Very <laughs> Tyler cool. was like, hello, good morning. I was like, hi, I got this hat over the weekend. Um, it's that one, if you've seen it online, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it has the Montana outline. And then it has yeah. the moose fishing. So if you look at it, you would probably think the team is some sort of fish because the fish is in the, the foreground, but it, it's the paddle heads, the moose is in the background. Uh, I love it so much. I've, I've actually never been to Montana, um, but I love the outline of, of the hat. It looks great. Um, it's black. It's going to work in so many different ways. And I'm sure it's going to be a conversation starter somewhere. Um, you know, once I'm able to go back out to bars and stuff, uh, many months from now, I'm sure there's going to be somebody from Montana coming up and asking about it or uh, somebody just being like, I've never seen that before. What is it? And, or maybe somebody who will recognize it. I mean, cause the minor league uh, landscape is so large that if somebody gets a Missoula Paddleheads hat, I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about. Uh, and that's just one hat that I'm very excited about. There's any number of ones, Tyler, we talked about it this week. Richmond came out with Foback ones, yeah, uh, which were, one looked like it was Rocky, the flying squirrel, but it's, it's a little bit different uh, animated squirrel. But then there was another one that had the Virginia outline inside of an R, which looked really, really neat. And yeah, straight out of the fifties or sixties. Um, every minor league team has something like that. To, so whether it's your local team or a team you've always been a fan of and followed from afar, uh, there's no better way right now to support them than doing that, especially being from afar. If we're going to talk later with both Ben and Joe Bloss of MILB.com about ways that other minor league teams are able to generate some revenue right now, keep the, the wheels turning and like stuff like that. Not every team can do that right now, um, but there are ways of supporting, and this is a great one. Yeah, it's uh, a good way to show your your love and your support for minor league teams and try to help out a little bit in a really difficult time. And uh, yeah, that's uh, the story is up at MILB.com right now. And that'll do it for our opening segment on this week's episode of the show before the show. As an official partner of minor league baseball, Nationwide is here from life's first pitch to the seventh inning stretch. Whether you're looking for protection for your house, car, pet, or small business, Nationwide offers a wide range of products and support to make sure you're getting the right coverage for your specific needs. Visit Nationwide.com for more information on how we can help take care of what you have today and plan for what's ahead. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, Columbus, Ohio. A lengthy pre-interview conversation with Benjamin Hill, and now we join Ben for our interview conversation. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and hello, Sam. It was nice to have a uh, another talk that was uh, for paid subscribers only, and uh, you can, uh, if you're on an elite tier of show before the show listenership, you can hear everything we say before we get on the air, and it's uh, it's very uh, provocative, very spicy. Behind the velvet rope, that's yes. where uh, that's where you find it in the. Uh, and the premium lounge for the show before the show listeners that doesn't exist. Uh, so we welcome Ben in uh, to discuss uh, some stories that are up to or up on or coming to the site. Uh, one of which is really great. We've been obviously so starved for uh, baseball in minor league ballparks this year. We're not getting it in the uh, form of minor league baseball. I actually wrote a story the other day in which I talked to a guy who 
was one of the very few to have seen baseball in a minor league stadium this year before the pandemic hit. He went to an exhibition game at Las Vegas ballpark uh, the weekend before everything started shutting down. And uh, a little ways northeast of there at Lansing's Cooley Law School Stadium, the home of the Lansing Lugnuts, uh, that franchise has come up with something really cool to get some baseball in uh, this summer. Ben, tell us about the, uh, the Lansing Lugnuts and their Lemonade League. Yeah, the Lansing Lugnuts Lemonade League. Um, yeah, there's actually baseball going on uh, at, at uh, Cooley Law School Stadium. Um, the Lugnuts have created their own league. Um, and I think it's a really cool endeavor because as much as it's um, obviously restricted in what they can do, given the circumstances surrounding the country and the world right now, um, the fact that they made the effort to you know create something, brand it, uh, get their entire operation involved in putting live baseball on the field, uh, is really cool. So it's the Lemonade League. So let's start with that. Uh, the name, you know, refers to the old cliche, you know, the time-honored cliche, when life gives you lemons, uh, make lemonade. So obviously the lemons in, that the Lansing uh, lug nuts got, and we all got, you know, was 2020, COVID-19, the cancellation of the season. So the Lemonade League, you know, is there a chance, to, their, their attempt to make something out of it. So what they did is it's a two-team league. So um, I know that, I guess that's stretching the definition of league when you only have two teams, but I guess that's all you need for a league, just two teams to play each other. And those teams are the collegiate Lugnuts versus the collegiate Locos. And the Locos are usually the Lugnuts uh, Copa de la Diversion um, identity. So these are obviously two pre-existing identities that the team <clears throat> had, the, had the uniforms for and were able to do. But instead of, uh, you know, professional minor league players, they have players from local colleges playing for the collegiate lug nuts and the collegiate locos. And uh, the capacity at the ballpark is 100 fans. They all watch the game from uh, the Good Hops Bar and Grill uh, located in left field. So the entire uh, sellout crowd is 100 people all in one uh, set area of the stadium. Um, every ticket is $12. Uh, games are streamed on a variety of platforms. And uh, so, yeah, as much as it's a, a obviously a lower key operation than having 70 games and uh, being part of the class A Midwest league and it's 16 teams and all the travel and all the promotions and everything that goes along with it. I think it's really cool that uh, Lansing has put something together, uh, you know, created a lemonade out of their lemons, a literal lemonade league. And uh, I think from what I can tell from uh, talking to the team and uh, putting the story together and looking at what they have going on on social media and the games themselves, uh, you know, I'd say it's been a successful endeavor. And this feels almost like a bubble of, you know, things we're seeing at other sports, you know, NBA being in Orlando, the MLS was in Orlando. They just finished up there. NHL right now is are playing in two Canadian cities. This is just based in Lansing. Like you said, it's just two teams, but guys are wearing masks on the field, off the field. How are they kind of controlling for this and making sure it's going to work in terms of keep, keeping all the players healthy and allowing everybody to play every day? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, being in the so-called bubble helps. You know, there's no travel in this league. Um, so, I mean, that helps a little bit that it just, it's a very finite group of people, uh, you know, w without traveling to other ballparks and, and you, know, and, you know, visiting new populations and that, that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, regular testing, uh, temperature checks, um, you know, same with the fans, um, you know, making sure that the fans who show up are, are good to go. Um, and I think, you know, a little bit of, you know, hoping for the best. I think the way we, we all are that, you know, this is an experiment that can hold. Um, they're already, it's a 20-game schedule. They're more than halfway through it. Uh, their games through, I believe, August 22nd. And, 
Yeah, so far so good. Uh, the locos and the lug nuts. I'm not sure who's winning in the standings, who's in first place and who's in last, uh, you know, last being second place. Ben, the morale of seeing baseball in minor league stadiums this year has been a boost for a lot of people, whether it's alternate training sites for major league teams or, you know, the, the little things we've seen um, with high school games or renting out ballparks for, you know, fans to use them for batting practice. Did you get a sense of kind of what this means to, especially the, the lug nuts staff, uh, but even the community just having something, even though it's not normal and there aren't tons of fans there and it doesn't feel like a, a regular summer, it feels still like there is something in just these little moments that gives people uh, a little bit of hope. Yeah, I think there really is uh, for fans and staff and, and anyone who follows along uh, through the broadcast, you know, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, uh, you know, he's been the lug nuts broadcaster for a long time is doing these games. And uh, if you know, Jesse, you know, he, uh, you know, brings a lot of personality and uh, expertise to a broadcast. So these games are really presented well. I think it, you know, and from food and beverage to uh, ticketing to sponsorship, um, you can still be involved in, in running a league and running a team. And uh, I think that is, is really important right now. Uh, you know, for the fans, it's been pre-existing season ticket holders who have first crack at the very limited amount of tickets. And, you know, so some, those are some of the most hardcore fans in general and the ones who are missing baseball. And, uh, you know, I was talking to the team's general manager, uh, Tyler Parsons, and, you know, he was saying, you know, look, it, once they realized, you know, with health restrictions and talking to the, the uh, county health department, that they can only bring 100 people in to a ball, ball game, you know, it's $12 a ticket, do the math. I mean, they're also buying food and drink, but, you know, the amount of revenue you're going to bring in for any given game is, is very low. So obviously this is not a major money-making endeavor. They do have merch and, you know, they, they do find their ways to make money. But, you know, I think that it came down to that. Like, well, is this worth it? And I think the, the answer goes beyond I mean, you're not going to do anything to outright just lose money or just, you know, take a huge financial hit. But I think a lot of this comes down to that. You know, we can do this. So let's do it. It's something we can do. I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. Like, what can I do that kind of uh, establishes some sense of normalcy that makes me feel active, that makes me feel engaged? And, uh, you know, as Tyler pointed out to me, uh, Tyler Parsons in Lansing pointed out to me, you know, this is going to be the team's 25th anniversary season. They had a lot of bobbleheads, uh, giveaways, you know, anniversary logos, seen promotions around celebrating this anniversary. So if you can at least do something to show, hey, in this, you know, milestone season, we're still open, we're still operating, we're still there. I think that psychologically is an important thing. And one thing I want to ask about real quick, just because this is what stood out to me when they first announced it, is the yellow balls they're using. Oh, right. We're getting into that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there any reason for it other than it's just a kitschy thing? They've, they're playing seven inning games. There's a home run derby if the game is tied. Um, so th there's a lot of interesting things they're just playing with because what that, why the heck not? Yeah, you know, it's a weird that, year, but the yellow yeah, balls stand out to me. Yeah, yellow balls. You think of, you know, Charlie Finley with the A's back in the 70s when he tried to get, I think, orange baseballs established at the major league level. It didn't happen, obviously. But yeah, as your lemonade league, you think of, you know, yeah, the color yellow, lemons, you know, so yellow baseball is part of the branding. Uh, they have not done the post game, and all games are seven innings. They have not had a one-on-one -on -one home run derby to establish a tie. It's funny that that um, the, the post-game home run derby came about because in the uh, 2018 All-Star game, that Midwest League All-Star game that happened in Lansing, I happened to be at that game, uh, it was on the cusp of ending in a tie with no way to really establish um, a winner. And there was this, I remember uh, being at that game and sensing a lot of anxiety among the staff of like, oh, this is going to be so anticlimactic if we host this All-Star game and then we just have 
you know, we have to call it a tie after I think whatever their max innings were 10 or 11. And uh, fortunately that didn't happen. But I think with that experience in mind, they, they had thought after that all-star game, we need to have a rule in place, like a post-game home run derby to ensure that we never end in a tie. And uh, that experience at the all-star game where a game almost ended in a tie, I think they brought that to the Lemonade League and said, you know what, we never want to see a game end in a tie. We've been thinking about the concept of a post-game home run derby, so let's apply it to the Lemonade League. One thing that is uh, embedded in the story, uh, something that's available in Good Hops, the restaurant, is the BBP and J burger, which is a uh, it's a quote new spin on Elvis's favorite sandwich. Elvis Presley, of course, uh, very famously loved peanut butter and banana. This is peanut butter, banana slices, a uh, chef's own bacon jam uh, on a burger, and I obviously very much would like to try this i'm i don't know i don't know how you know peanut butter and and bacon on a burger i've done before adding a banana in there fruit on meat is uh it's a dicey proposition it's probably very good but it's there's a lot going on there yeah i agree uh elvis you know if it it would be worse for elvis who would say it wouldn't work for uh the common man um, and you know, he, he, he was a, I don't know if he was a gourmand, but he certainly had his man with an appetite and he loved those kind of sandwiches for a good reason. Uh, but I do think it speaks to the lug nuts, you know, even with just these 100 fans, you know, they're all going to be there in the restaurant and one, you know, trying to raise the per caps, trying to, you know, get fans to spend more money. You're going to do more high end stuff. And again, just the idea that, Hey, if we're going to be doing this, let's be creative. Let's roll out some stuff. You know, maybe it was originally created for the 25th anniversary celebration, uh, for a normal season, but hey, we can still sell it. We can still be creative. We can still have a, a sandwich inspired by Elvis. And I think that's what, in the world of minor league baseball, those are the things that make everything seem a little more normal. I like it. Ben, there is uh, another piece you're working on, uh, spurred, inspired in part by the Toronto Blue Jays setting up shop in uh, in Buffalo this year. There are major league histories in a lot of minor league cities, and people probably would not expect that. Obviously, it's major league history that dates back uh, well over a century in most cases, but uh, especially many international league cities at one time were home to major league teams. And Buffalo, I know, had a, a team in the Players League and a team in the Federal League, and so maybe it's not necessarily just the American or National League, but there are major league histories in a lot of these places. Tell us about what you're working on with, with that story. Yeah, you know, I was kind of casting about yesterday thinking like, oh, I need a creative uh, story idea and was kind of coming up short with some of my ideas. But of course, there was a lot of uh, people talking about Buffalo and a lot of social media discussion about Buffalo. And one of the things you often saw was, you know, for the first time in 105 years, Buffalo is hosting a major league game. And that got me thinking about Buffalo's prior major league history and then thinking about the International League in general, of which the Buffalo Bisons are a part. You know, of those 14 teams, I think half of them, you know, have a major league history of some kind or another. So I've gone through uh, the league as it currently stands now, looked at all their cities, and uh, I'm writing about those major league histories, which is, uh, in the case of these International League cities, a lot of them have major league histories in the form of the American Association of uh, 1882 to 1891. Uh, the National League established in 1876 and still going. Uh, yes, the short-lived Players League uh, with 1890 only. Uh, the Federal League, a you know, third major league that started in, it lasts for two seasons in 1914 and 1915. So the history can get a little complicated, but I'm doing my best. And uh, you, you just, you know, when you're looking at baseball from the 19th century, earliest, early 20th century, it's really easy to go down some, some rabbit holes, find some crazy facts, 
Um, you know, think, looking at the last time, you know, the, it, there was Major League Baseball in Buffalo, you know, prior to, uh, you know, the Blue Jays playing there, you know, going back to the Federal League team of 1914 and 1915, uh, that 1914 Federal League, Federal League team in Buffalo, the Blues, uh, a man named Charles Poré was on the roster, and uh, he's the only Major League Baseball player to have listed as being born at sea. Uh, huh. kind of thing, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. It's, it's, it's tough to find. I'm, I was looking for more information on Charles Poré, but, you know, when you go back to the last time Buffalo had Major League Baseball, you know, you had a guy who was born at sea on the roster, you know, that, uh, that sort of thing. Going back, you know, in Columbus to the 1883-1884 Buckeyes of the American Association, and you've got guys on that team, you know, a dude who apparently inspired the term Southpaw, uh, a man named Eddie Cannonball Morris, a deaf player who prompted um umpires to invent safer outcalls, allegedly. The inventor of the chest protector, you know, stuff like that. It's just crazy when you go back to that era of baseball. And so I'm just kind of exploring that, writing about uh, little capsule write-ups of Major League histories in Columbus and Louisville uh, in Indianapolis, Rochester, Syracuse, Toledo, uh, what have you. And, uh, you know, all inspired by Buffalo. A return to Major League action after 105 years. I just want to point out, uh, this is according to a Huffington Post story from uh, 2014, and it appears to have been lifted from a, uh, a Quora Answers thing, so it's probably not accurate at all. But uh, this says, if you are born on an international flight, uh, and this is a law that comes obviously stubbed off of uh, international uh, sea travel at one time, you would, uh, the baby would take the citizenship of the mother. So in case you're wondering, well, if I was born in international airspace, to whom do I belong? Uh, the country that your mom's a citizen of. So there you go. Now you know. Uh, ben, what else is going on? What else is coming up? How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, as we were talking in our um, uh, show before the show, before the show conversation, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little antsy right now. I've been inside too long. It's too hot here in New York City. I haven't, I need to get out to the water. I think I'm feeling like a lot of people are feeling a little antsy. Uh, but hey, I'm not here to complain. I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. I'm writing about uh, the Major League history of International League clubs. I'm writing about Lemonade Leagues. And um, I'm going to have some fun stuff next week and fun stuff every week and uh, try to keep it going. And what is going on? It's already, we're coming up on mid-August. We're yeah. coming up on what would have been the final, what, three weeks? Yeah of the regular season minor league baseball campaign insane that is a little hard to fathom that we'd be actually at this point in normal times thinking at least vaguely about the off season being imminent so like right. what it feels like it's just hard to contextualize things right now but you know we're doing the best we can and i, and I think all of us uh you know well the world america milb.com and i think we've done pretty good at uh, uh trying to stay active and engaged and finding a lot of fun stuff to write about and talk about and uh you know, just keeping it going, you know, really uh, hunkering down in our little uh, corners of the universe and finding fun things. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's crazy. Ordinarily, we would be getting uh, an email right around now that would say like, hey, just a heads up, six weeks away from the AAA National Championship game. And to be at this stage and nearing the midway point of August is uh, what a what a world in 2020. Benjamin Hill, you can find uh, on Twitter at Ben's Biz. The stories are up on the site right now. And uh, great stuff as always, Ben. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, good talking to you, Tyler. Good talking to you, Sam. And indeed, we will talk next week. It'll still be August. Our minor league writer spotlight this week. Uh, for the first time, we get a chance to catch up with Joe Bloss, who's got a great story. Uh, if you're a Boston Red Sox fan, a Pawtucket Red Sox fan, a future Worcester 
uh, Red Sox fan, the Woo Sox, then you'll enjoy the conversation to come. Joe, what's going on? How are you? I'm great, guys. It's uh, great to be on and uh, ready to talk a little Paul Sox. Well, it's great to have you, man. This is uh, obviously one of the toughest situations in minor league baseball this year uh, belongs to the Pawtucket Red Sox. This was supposed to be the farewell season for uh, a franchise that uh, is near and dear to a lot of New Englanders' hearts. Obviously, Sam, we've talked uh, a lot about the, the history of that franchise and McCoy Stadium and all of it. And this year, they were supposed to get a chance to say goodbye. And then a pandemic hits and robs uh, a lot of minor league franchises of a chance to see their fans and engage with them. But it's so different in the case of the Paw Sox this year. And yet, now serving as an alternate training site for the Red Sox, they are doing a lot to stay involved, keep themselves connected with their community, uh, including welcoming people into essentially a full-service restaurant. So they're hosting uh, the alternate training site stuff. They're also hosting fans outside of that time. This is really cool with, you know, we just talked with Ben uh, about the the Lansing Lemonade League. This kind of falls in those same lines. It's uh, a lot of lemons in the world in 2020, but some teams are figuring out how to, how to squeeze some lemonade out of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, like you said, with McCoy closing after this year, um, it, it, it's a good way to keep both employees, um, you know, working in this restaurant and, and fans connected to the team with, with these sim games being broadcast over, over Twitter and Facebook and, and, you know, letting fans into the stadium. Maybe these are people who've been there for years and years and years. They've never actually been on the field. So this is an opportunity for, for people that might not have existed in a normal year. Um, so that, that to me is pretty cool. And give us a sense of, of what this restaurant is like, because in your piece, you talk about how basically the Red Sox have agreed that they're not going to have alternate training site workouts go past three. The first reservation at, at McCoy is at five thirty, So there's like two and a half hours to get a minor league baseball field, which basically has to be up to MLB standards at this point to serve as an alternate site and turn that into a restaurant. So what, take us through what the restaurant looks like and what they're serving and how, like you said, some of these employees are becoming servers, they're becoming busboys, they're getting employed in other ways than they would be on normal game day. Right. Uh, the, the days where, where, they have, where they have the restaurant open are just at really madness at, at McCoy Stadium. So let's say, for example, on a Saturday, um, you know, they, they have a sim game in the early afternoon, late morning, and they'll, they'll try to wrap that up around three o'clock. Um, so the players are leaving and, and the employees are really scheduled to be there right on, t- on time, right on schedule when the players leave, because they don't want to have too much overlap with, with people in the stadium because they don't want, you know, you know, still, even with all this safety is the, is the most important thing. Um, so they're basically setting up the entire restaurant almost from scratch each time they're open, each night they're open. So they'll set up, they'll, they'll, they'll drag chairs and tables out onto the outfield, obviously keeping them distanced from each other to keep things safe. And um, then it, it's a reservation system online and, and folks are coming in at 5.30. And then it, it's just as, as if you're, you know, you're at your favorite restaurant that, that's been open for years. Um, it's just, you're on a baseball field. So the, the menu, um, you know, it touches on some baseball classics. You can of course get a hot dog, you can get a hamburger, things like that. But then they have a little more uh, of, of a local flair, let's say with a, with New England lobster rolls or things like that. And a little more of an advanced menu. Um, and it actually has worked out great for them because, you know, in previous years, the, the executive kitchen at the ballpark is usually producing in a, in a given day, food for somewhere between 300 and 500 people in terms of players, coaches, media, luxury suites. 
And here in the restaurant, they, they get about 500 people a night if, if all the reservations fill up, which was, has been the case pretty much every night. So it, it's somewhat of a smooth transition for them um, in terms of food service. In terms of employees, it's, it's kind of the complete opposite. It's worked out, but it's a lot of people who didn't have food service experience. I, I talked to the two broadcasters from the team, uh, Mike Antonellis and, and Josh Maurer, and they're both uh, waiters. And they've been trained pretty, pretty extensively and pretty quickly to become, you know, food service professionals. And uh, they do a lot of things that I think me and you, at least for me, I, I've never worked in a restaurant. So probably things that I take for granted. And they've, uh, you know, they've kind of started to try to master the craft. Yeah, it is interesting, Joe, reading uh, the descriptions of this life from those guys. Josh Maurer says, uh, quote, you've got a protein and carb load as best you can. The dining, it's a physical challenge. It really is. He, uh, a night a couple of weeks ago, walked 7.9 miles, according to his phone. Um, that's, this is such a 2020 story in that in one respect, it's probably tremendously awkward. And uh, I know even Josh describes that when he goes up to tables, he pretty much says to them, Hey, I'm usually the radio broadcaster, but uh, you're kind of stuck with me down here now because of this. Uh, on the other hand, even despite that weirdness, I would imagine it feels good to have something to do. Uh, what was the sense that you got from the front office just as, as far as, uh, you know, at least having a, a calling this year in a weird summer in which your regular calling has been put on hold. What does that mean to this front office right now? I think they love it. I think it's, it's a great opportunity. You know, not every team has been fortunate enough to be able to have an operation like this. There are, there are people, unfortunately, in minor league baseball who have been furloughed. And, and this is an opportunity for them to, to still be working, to still be, you know, working together. I think there, there's a lot of camaraderie there. And it's an accomplishment to be able to, you know, have everyone sort of pitch in, learn new roles, learn new skills. And I, and I think they've kind of really, you know, jumped at the opportunity and, and enjoyed it. Um, I think part of that comes from the reaction that they're getting from, from fans. And I, I guess if you want to call them customers that, that are coming in through the restaurant, that a lot of these people have enjoyed it just as much a, as the employees, because um, let's face it, it's a, it's a unique situation that, that maybe we wish we weren't in. We'd love to be playing baseball, but um, to be able to still celebrate the building that all the baseball comes in and, and still sort of, um, you know, make something happen, I, I think it is worth it is, is worth the effort. And um, they've seemed to really enjoy it. And uh, one other one I have about just the transition here, you you quote uh, Anton Ellison here that saying on the last serving of the night, we're walking around that grass, making sure there's not even one French fry. So we've done a lot of talking about the restaurant, but that turnover the other way of getting from a place in which all these people have eaten, they've sat in chairs they've created many many divots maybe necessarily and then we we have the alternate site roster coming in in the morning and having to play on that surface we know how you know nitpicky groundskeepers can be during any scenario uh even during the regular season in which basically practice happens there in the, the morning before a game going the other way from a restaurant back to a game surface what is that transition like what, what did you get out of that Right. Um, and and um, it's interesting because I think the, the most in, the, the most dynamic uh, perspective on this would probably have been the groundskeeper. And Matt McKinnon is, is the groundskeeper in, in Pawtucket. And I wanted to talk to him and I basically couldn't because he's so busy. And, and, and basically, you know, it, it's an around the clock uh, task for him where, you know, if, if there were to be, if 
when there's games being played, you know, it's still a busy job trying to maintain that field. And, and now with the restaurant getting taken down, you know, two or three nights a week, that, that just adds a whole new wrinkle and, and a lot more traffic on the field that he has to deal with. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, Mike had, had a comment that they, they basically have to make sure everything's gone. Everything has to be up to standards of, of um, you know, an MLB field when these players show up the next morning. And um, it, it's a lot of work. It certainly is. And uh, from what I can see, these tables are not very light. They look pretty heavy, uh, like pretty big picnic tables. So it, it's a workout to get it started, a workout to, to run a restaurant for a few hours every night, and it's certainly still a workout to take it down. This is a really great story that's up on the site right now at MILB.com. Uh, Joe Bloss, you can find on Twitter at JT Bloss. And Joe, this is really great stuff, man. It's been obviously such a, a brutal season for all of us in so many ways, but being able to find and cover these stories has been really cool from, uh, from our team at MILB. And so uh, thanks for coming on. It's good to, to finally have you on and great stuff in this one. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Saying goodbye on this week's episode of the show before the show. Be back with you next week, of course. Uh, Before we go, Sam has this week's nationwide prospect fun fact. Yeah, so we're going to stick with a rookie theme here because Major League Baseball is happening. Some of these guys still technically prospects. um, So we're going to be following the rookie of the year races pretty closely this year. And I think if there were to be a favorite uh, on either side in the AL or the NL, the AL is probably Kyle Lewis, um, somebody who – got off to an incredibly hot start for the Seattle Mariners. But in the NL, and this is going to be the focus of our fun fact this week, I think the favorite right now might have to be Jake Cronenworth, uh, who has done a tremendous Jake Cronenworth, as Padres <laughs> fans have started calling him. Uh, it's been really cool to see him come through because he came over from the Rays uh, last offseason, kind of felt like a throw-in. He was involved in that Esteban Quiroz story that we talked about a couple weeks about ago with Gerard, um, but that was really the Tommy Pham trade, it felt like. But the Padres also picking up Jay Cronenworth, who's been able to play multiple positions. He's been able to cover first base incredibly well uh, for Eric Hosmer while he's been out. Now he's played a little bit of second base. He has shortstop in his repertoire as well. Uh, that's what he primarily primarily played last year, Triple A Durham. He actually won the International League batting title last year. There are a lot of good things about him. Uh, he feels like somebody who over the course of his career was going to maybe be an average player at best, but he's been more than that so far. So here's the fun facts through August 11th, which was, is the day before we're recording this. He leads rookie position players in average. He's batting 361 in slugging percentage, 750 OPS 1.128 and WRC plus 205. He's been twice as good a hitter as the average major league hitter this year. Uh, It's been really special to see Jake Cronenworth do this. He's a big reason why the Padres have been as good as they've been this year because they can keep plugging him in and he continues to produce at at multiple spots. He's not going to kick Fernando Tatis Jr., who might be the best player in baseball this year, off shortstop. But if they can get him time at second base, get him some time at first, maybe get him some time at third to spell Manny Machado every now and again. And, oh, by the way, he did pitch some last year in the Tampa Bay system. I don't think they're going to throw him in the bullpen, but the option is there. Uh, Jay Cronenworth could be a really fun rookie of the year candidate the rest of the way. Uh, So something to keep an eye on over there in San Diego. And what has really been an exciting season 
for them in what is turning out to be a loaded NL West between the start that the Rockies are off to and the Dodgers are still lurking around there uh, and still the prohibitive favorites, but we'll see how the next uh, three quarters of the season goes. So keep an eye on Jake Cronenworth. That's what I'm going to say going forward. And at one time, a pretty promising amateur hockey player too, Jake Cronenworth. He can do anything on any sort of athletic field of endeavor, it would would, uh, appear. Uh, Must be nice to have skills (laughs) in sports. I'm not one of them. Uh, So that'll do it. Big thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. For Sam Baxter, I'm Tyler Maul. We'll talk to you next week. 